Hello, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome a terrific guest and a longtime friend, Kevin Sowers, President of Johns Hopkins Health System and Executive Vice President of Johns Hopkins Medicine. Kevin is only the second person ever to hold those dual roles. He has a master's degree from Duke University, where he spent 32 years with the Duke Health System, the last eight as president of Duke University Hospital. Kevin, thanks a million for being with us. It's great to have you. Tom, it's a pleasure to be with you, and it's a pleasure to hear your voice again. You know, I I was thinking as we were getting ready to, to get together that this is the longest I think I've gone without seeing you in person, and I can't wait for this all to get on the other side so that we can get back together and do these things in person. Tom, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> well, why don't we jump right in and uh, talk about something that I think is unique to your situation, and that's all-payer rate parity. You know, the the payment rate disparity between uh, public and private insurance that has evolved over the 40 years of negotiations between providers and insurers has resulted in something that's really hard to rationalize. And I wonder if you think that there are things that you can do as a health system in Maryland that were more difficult when you were in other markets where you had that cross-subsidization to deal with. Tom, that's a great question. And I would say that uh, there's a couple points I want to make before I get into the, the Maryland model. And that is every payer system I've ever interacted with in my career um, has its own set of issues. It's you understanding how to work within those issues. But one of the things I can say about the the Maryland model, it has been in place for over 40 years. And so what's unique in coming into this market, um, many people grew up in this market, um, not having the experience of needing to juggle the private payer subsidization issue that we're faced with in, in the other 49 states. I, I can speak to my experience at Duke where, you know, we, we did have the issue of subsidization that was very much a reality, like a lot of my peers across the country. Uh, everywhere else in the nation, there is a pressure to negotiate with uh, the private payers to kind of make up the difference for the losses that people see with Medicare and Medicaid. But in Maryland, government payers actually reimburse at the same rate as everyone else. So this actually translates into lower costs for employees and insurers, and it really does create a a fairer system or a fairer model. One of the things this model forces you to do is really, unlike the other model where you you eat what you kill it, and the more you uh, um, do, the more you get paid. In this model, you're forced to reinvest or invest um, in strategies that will help you decrease ER utilization and hospital days because that's what then begins to create a better margin for you as a system. So the incentives are uniquely different uh, from one model to the other one. You know, it's fascinating. You point out something that I hadn't thought of, and that's a lot of folks who have spent a long portion of a career in a rate-regulated environment like Maryland might not have that experience that most of the rest of us do um, with that cross-subsidization. And and so, uh, you know, a lot of times we find ourselves what I think is perilously dependent on private sector pricing to make up that difference. And and your experience 
coming from outside of Maryland and, and now having some experience in Maryland, you can see it uh, for what it is, which is that inversion of, of incentives. Is that fair? Yeah. What, what I like about the model, um, and once again, there are, there are unique things that challenge you in the, within the model, but the model does really force you to think about um, what are the community strategies you have to put in place to better manage your high utilizers? So, um, uh, for instance of that is um, we, when I first came here, I noticed that at our Johns Hopkins Hospital, 30% of our patients coming to the ER were actually coming for dental pain. And that was uh, kind of unique for me to see that. But what I realized was Medicaid and Medicare did not cover dental care. So many of our residents had no alternative uh, strategy for a dental plan. So we partnered with one of the federally qualified health centers here in the city and created a, a robust plan for dental care where if patients come to the ER, they're screened, and then after that, they're sent to the federally qualified health center uh, where they actually get their dental care. And so, you know, what, what that's done for our ER utilization is taken a level of care, a, a patient who needs care, but not the level of care of an emergency room, and gotten them to the right place. Um, it, you know, in any other model, um, the more of that you do, the more you get. But in this model, our GBR, uh, which is our global budget revenue, um, is just a set price that we get um, for hospital uh, events. And so it really does force you to think about how you integrate yourself better into the community to focus on that 10% that drives 90% of your, your healthcare costs. Well, it's very helpful that you have brought up that that uh, GBR, the, the global budget revenue. I know one of the things that folks sometimes get confused by is they equate that GBR to what uh, managed care used to used to have as capitation. And I, I think it's really important for folks to understand the difference. It's not capitation in that you're not accepting incidence risk for disease. You're, you're actually... Uh, encouraged to take care of sick people um, as opposed to capitation where you hope that you don't get anyone who's sick. So talk to us a little bit about, about the difference between that GBR, that global budgeted revenue that has no incidence risk and, and, and how that um, gives you an incentive to not avoid sick people, but to take care of those sick people. You know, Tom, it's a great question because it really is an evolution of the model over the last 40 years because it's only been in this new waiver that we've been uh, dealing with the GBR and total cost of care. Um, it was always a different model, but there were new targets set around uh, global budgets and uh, total cost of care for the savings of Medicare fee-for-service in the state of Maryland. And so, GBR was set at the beginning of that waiver for every hospital. And, you know, what it really means is you get paid the same amount whether there are 10 patients in a bed that year in your hospital or 1,000 patients. So it really does force you to look at 
where is the best place to provide services for what types of patients and what's the level of care required? Um, now, the, one of the things I want to make clear is GBR is only for hospitals. Your unregulated services still have to be negotiated with the payer and your pro fees have to be negotiated with. So this is very much a hospital-centric model. Um, and so investing in the community is really important, once again, uh, as I go back to that, because it, it's fundamental that we're incented on, on the community and the community um, uh, benefits that come from focusing on social determinants as you look at that. An example I'll give for you, Tom, is that here in Baltimore City, uh, we have a homeless population of about uh, 2,500 or, or, or are at risk for homelessness, I should say, too. And, you know, when we look at their utilization patterns of the emergency room and the hospital care, uh, homelessness is a big driver, mental health, and then also substance abuse. So in this model, we um, have partnered with all the hospitals in the city, and uh, we've focused uh, with another FQHC here in the city, which is called Healthcare for the Homeless, to actually fund supporting housing services for individuals who are homeless. And to qualify for the program, individuals have to have multiple chronic conditions, and they have to have demonstrated that they used our ED and inpatient visits uh, through a certain uh, threshold. You know, and through this program and what we've done with the, the implementation of this program, the, the early evaluation of the data shows that we've seen a 54% decrease in ER utilization and a 33% decrease in overall healthcare costs. So when you start to think about that, it, it's a model where it forced the city hospitals in Baltimore to come together to figure out a, a strategy together of how we were going to address this issue of homelessness and ER and hospital utilization and putting our dollars together into the community to actually decrease utilization patterns. And that's really a different way of thinking about it compared to um, how I may have thought about uh, driving uh, strategies in a um, model that's, that's not an all-payer model. Let's stay there for a moment. I would have probably raised that question a little later in the conversation, but you brought us to it uh, at, at the perfect time. It, it makes me think, and knowing you as well as I do, I, I know that, that to you, uh, health disparities and some of the socioeconomic determinants of medical consumption are, are, are issues that are, that are close to you. And just tell me from a from a personal standpoint, how does it make you feel to be able to tackle some of these intractable problems um, in a in an environment where uh, at least the money is in part uh, there to work with? Well, you know, the interesting thing is not only the money is there, but um, through this GBR. It becomes clear that uh, the HSCRC, which is the agency that oversees uh, GBR and the waiver and the distribution of the dollars to uh, or, or the distribution of the rates uh, across the system, it's interesting that they also have what's called transformational grants that they put in place. And it's grants that really um, allow you to invest 
on the social determinants of health, such as education, jobs, housing, and how that, in, in effect, will begin to decrease healthcare utilization. You know, um, there's multiple studies, Tom's out there, and I'm sure you've read them just like I have, that really show that 40% of all healthcare costs are somehow associated with socioeconomic factors and social determinants. So when you think about a single mom working three jobs, she's not in a position to make uh uh, that annual well child visit happen all the time. And it's not that she doesn't want to, there there are challenges in doing that. And so the more that we can do in our community and working with our sister hospitals in our communities um, to develop systems of care becomes so incredibly important uh, as I think about how to approach that. And so the more that we can put our dollars in to help with that, it's important to share an example. We have um, a jobs program that we created here. And under this program, we partner with community-based organizations to recruit, train, and hire individuals who have historically been excluded from the workforce. And I'm talking about people with criminal backgrounds, people in recovery from mental illness, and actually people who have had substance use disorders. And these individuals are hired to be community health workers and peer recovery specialists, and they're hired to help us in their own communities. Now, we've just started this program, so it's it's too early yet to show the long-term savings. But when I look at the anecdotal information that we have thus far and how it's transformed lives and taken people into recovery, um, it's it's making an incredible difference. You know, one young mother noted in one of our focus groups uh, that she was finally able to live what she had been preaching to her son, and that was there's a difference between living and living with options. And her point was, now that I have a job, I'm living with options. I'm just not living. And so it's those kind of partnerships and those kinds of strategies of how you take community health care workers and use them in your community that will probably make a bigger uh, impact than having someone in a white lab coat stand in front of them and telling them they need to stop using. You know me and and our work. And one of the uh, one of the things as I get older that that I'm I'm coming to realize is that uh, that the traditional financing system that we have in this country is getting more and more difficult for me to get to stay comfortable with, and I'm I'm touched by the fact that that the GBR uh, total cost of care model enables you to do some things that I think you and I would uh, would think of as the right thing to do rather than waiting for an incentive to do it. It, it just enables you to do the right thing. Uh, talk to me about how rewarding that is uh, for those of us that got into healthcare, not because it was an interesting industry, but because we thought it was an important thing to do. Well, you know, it, it allows uh, the system and the hospitals within the system to understand their community healthcare needs and what are the key drivers of utilization patterns and focus on developing community-based efforts. Uh, for instance, one of the things we're working on right now is hospital at home uh, because we're seeing a population that we believe we could actually provide services at home without them even coming to the hospital. And we're doing that through our, through our home care program. So how do we make... Um, 
healthcare easier for people to interact with where they live and where they feel more comfortable. Um, and that that's a part of what's been exciting for that. Now, there will always be the innovation piece, especially for the academic medical centers where um, they need to come to us for that innovation. And that will be uh, always a part of uh, us advancing the uh, promise of medicine. And so clearly um, that will be critical. But um, we all know that there are all those elements of healthcare that if we could embed those back into the community and back into homes, uh, we could create healthier communities. Kevin, this has been a unique opportunity for us to think outside the box. I'd like to ask you a lighthearted question, and then I wonder if I could ask you to come back again to explore a few more ideas. Tom, for you, I will always do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I uh, learned recently that uh, before you got into nursing as a profession, you were a voice and music major as an undergraduate. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how that uh, influenced your career choice and did it have anything to do with with how how you did or didn't do in your favorite role? So, you know, Tom, it's interesting because um, what most people don't probably know is I grew up in poverty in in Ohio. I grew up on a pig farm and no one had ever been to college on either side of my family. And so uh, I loved playing uh, the piano and I loved voice, um, was a tenor. And so I thought uh, that's what I was going to do. But because my parents didn't have the resources Um, I actually worked two summer jobs. And my first summer job was I went to a county nursing home and taught music therapy and had people exercise with me from their wheelchairs um, uh, and doing music therapy. And then at night for the 3 to 11 shift, I would go to another nursing home in town and I would become an orderly where I would feed people, bathe them and put them to bed. And it was during those years that um, I really fell in love with caring for people. And I knew I wanted to be a nurse. I have to remember this was in the late 70s, early 80s. And of course, not many men went into nursing during that time. So uh, that was uh, a difficult pill for my uh, macho uh, farmer dad um, to swallow at that period of time. Um, but uh, it was my mom who made the incredible difference that really made the point is, is do you have the passion to care? And so I'm reminded of that and uh, the the difference she has made in my life by making that statement to my dad, because we probably wouldn't be talking right now if my mom hadn't really stood up for that moment. And so there there is a song that I am always reminded of when I sing it. Um, and it's uh, one of the arias that's actually in Les Miserables, and it's um, Bring Him Home. And uh, every time I think about that, um, I think about that moment in my life where it was transformational, um, but the importance of home, but the importance of growing into being the individual you really want to be. Well, I have to thank you for that. My daughters and and my family and I are Les Mis uh, fans. We've probably seen the play 30 times uh, in three different countries, and uh, I would I would pay a little extra to hear you uh, sing Jean Valjean. So we'll do that on the third time that we get together, perhaps. Kevin and I are going to be back next time to continue this conversation. I hope you'll join us too. We hope you find these conversations to be thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for our next Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.